Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I speak to Eddie Dempsey of the RMT about the current strike action being taken by members of the RMT up and down the country, including the background to the strikes um, and how the government has effectively constructed a railway network that exists to take money out of the pockets of workers and funnel it out to shareholders and executives. Thank you so much, as always, to all of our patrons who make the show possible. If you're not a patron now and you'd like to become one, please go to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description and we really need your support. Um, If you want to support the show in another way, then please do consider sharing this episode on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Now, first, a word from our sponsor before I take you to our interview with Eddie Dempsey. The Left Book Club is a not-for-profit subscription book club. It's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore radical alternatives to the current crises of capitalism. Every book is printed in a unique edition and you can choose from between 6 or 12 books a year. Plus, there's author events and discounts from publishers, including Pluto Press and Tribune magazine. A World to Win listeners can get their first month subscription for free by going to leftbookclub.com slash member and using the code WINFREE. That's WINFREE, all letters capitalized at the checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here with the RMT's Eddie Dempsey. Eddie, how are you doing today? I'm not too bad, Grace. Good. So we're going to be talking today about the strikes that have dominated the news media over the last week or so, more than that. And I guess let's start by just talking about what the background is to the strike. What were you being offered in terms of wage increases? And were there any other issues uh, that led you to take this action? So the background to this dispute is like lots of different industries and sectors uh, who had to keep going during the pandemic rather than work from home. Our people in the railway, none of them were furloughed, all had to work during the pandemic, a lot of them in some quite difficult circumstances. A lot of the work we had to do, um, it's impossible to do without breaching the social distancing rules and all of the other regulations, but we had to do that during the pandemic to keep the railway going and to keep key workers getting to where they needed to be during during the health emergency. Uh, so during that period, we've had a series of pay freezes, if you like. We have uh, anniversary dates, like everyone else, every year where we, where we seek to settle pay arrangements for the coming year. And lots of our members now in the railway industry are in their third year, effectively, of a pay freeze. But coming out of the pandemic, coming out of the health emergency proper, the government has taken the decision to uh, strip $4 billion out of the operational expenditure of the railway and the budget for TfL. Now, those cuts are drastic for a start-off. The railway has always been subsidised um, before it was privatised, right the way through privatisation. But over the last 10 years, there has been a shift from the level of subsidy versus revenue into the industry arising from ticket sales. And it's tilted from heavy subsidy to a lower portion of that revenue coming from ticket sales in the other direction. So most of the revenue now comes from ticket sales and a much smaller chunk comes from government subsidy. 
Uh, but at the same time, this money's being stripped out. The government has uh, protected and fixed the profits for private companies in the railway industry. So in the train operating companies, they've taken something in the region of 500, it's just north of 500 million pounds in profits every year during the health emergency. And we have companies called rolling stock leasing companies that are a very strange part of the railway infrastructure. You never hear about them in the news because they've got no operational role. Uh, but what these companies are, are really consortiums of mainly banks and financial institutions that have got holding companies here and in tax havens. And these are the companies that own what we call a rolling stock, the trains. And they lease those trains to the industry. So Southern South Eastern trains or whoever your train you're getting on, those trains are leased from these rolling stock companies. And their profits and their prices are fixed. So when ticket sales have been falling, uh, because revenue hasn't coming in because people not using the railway during a pandemic moment. And when other types of operational expenditure has been cut, their profits have been fixed. And lots of that money that they've been getting is it's really a direct subsidy. The money just comes straight from government into the industry. It's laundered through the railway and it leaves the country, uh, particularly in the cases of these rolling stock leasing companies, and often goes to their holding companies a lot of them are based in Guernsey, the Cayman Islands, Luxembourg and elsewhere. So they've been sucking huge amounts out of the industry. In the worst pandemic year, they got three billion. So that's, you know, almost a quarter of the entire subsidy that went to the rail industry during the health emergency in the worst year left this country effectively and went straight through these uh, rolling stock leasing companies and into tax havens and into private profits. We've got people at the top of the industry that are on crazy, crazy salaries and bonus schemes. And our members are painfully aware of all of that. It's not something they're spoken about often in the public, but our members are really, really aware of this. They know how much the CEO of their company earns. They know how much the chief financial officer earns. They know how much their companies are getting uh, in profit and the profits they're putting up as declared. And they know how much you're going through these rolling stock companies and they don't see the purpose for their existence. So we've got this situation where the government is stripping out the operational expenditure of the railway and protecting profits. And in the new setup of the rail industry, Great British Railways, we don't have a franchising system anymore. So we used to have franchises that competed with each other to win franchises. They run those for a number of years. So there was competition. And when, when the railways were privatised, the public was told that it was this competition between these different operators that would drive up uh, standards, improve services and give a better experience for people travelling on the railway. Well, now there is no more competition. So the government simply awards public rail contracts to these companies and they've got fixed profits at around 2% and they can achieve more if they perform well. So whatever happens, whether revenue in the industry falls, whether it increases, whether you know more people work from home, whatever, their profits are absolutely protected and there's absolutely no competition. So our members are, are, are aware of this situation and they see this money leaving their industry and they see the people at the top of their industry telling them that you've got to tighten your belt and you know for the good of the country you can't have a pay rise and they're absolutely furious about that. So we 
hung back. We obviously didn't take any strike action during the health emergency. Um, we did. We didn't do that because we didn't want to prevent care workers and NHS workers getting to where they needed to be during the crisis. But now that we've come out really of the health emergency proper, uh, we're in a situation now where our members are demanding that their trade union deals with this crisis. So we've written to all of the companies that are controlled by the DFT. And it's worth noting at this point that companies that are not controlled by the DFT, so in Wales, in TfL and in other places where DFT is not in direct control, we're achieving decent pay rises. We've just had 7.1 in Mersey Rail, 8.5 in London Underground, 9.1 or 9.2 in Docklands Light Railway, north of 8% in Crossrail, other deals in Wales and elsewhere. So we're achieving deals above RPI inflation rates at, at the anniversary dates for their talks. So if we've got uh, a pay anniversary date in April, for example, we'll normally start pay discussions in February and we'll often use the February RPI figure. So wherever the RPI figure is, we will try to achieve above it in, in pay negotiations. And that's broadly what we're doing outside of the DFT controlled area. So we've written to all of these companies demanding a substantial pay rise. We haven't said or put a figure on that because we've got a broad range of companies with different anniversary dates. So we couldn't be too specific. And we've said that if there's change in the industry, we want that done through negotiated agreement as it always has been in the past. Um, and that means we can't have any compulsory redundancies. So if we've got people that want to leave the industry and are demanding a settlement, we have to look after those people. But if we've got people that want to stay, they need to be protected and we're not going to have anyone thrown out on the dole who wants to stay and work in the industry. And then finally, we want our terms and conditions protected because underneath the two billion they're stripping out of the industry is a whole menu of change and all of the change they're looking for in the industry doesn't relate to, for example, removing insane, expensive inefficiencies like having rolling stock leasing companies. There's no reason why we shouldn't own, own those trains ourselves. Um, and, and instead of saving those billions that are going through those companies, all the change they're focused on is on our members' terms and our members' conditions and our members' rates of pay. And it really is egregious what, what they're looking for. It's, uh, in effect, rolling back the last 40 years of trade union activity in the railway. And we, can't, we just can't tolerate that. We've got decent terms and conditions in a lot of places. Uh, we still have a lot of low pay in the railway industry, despite people thinking all RMT members are going to work, you know, with wearing a pair of uh, Reebok Classics made out of gold, you know, with diamond-studded mobile phones and all of that. A lot of our members are on low pay, uh, but they have got good conditions because we've managed to build those up over, over many years. And we're not, we're not prepared to sacrifice all of that. Uh, and neither should we, because we don't think the money should be stripped out, out of uh, out of the workforce in order to protect profits for companies that have basically been robbing the British taxpayers for years. So basically, the whole system then is set up to maximise profits for these companies. Um, yeah, it's a licence to print money, Grace. It's a, I call it a racket. It'd make the mafia blush. If they could get their <laughs> hands on it, they'd be delighted. It's, it's a, like a cash machine for these companies. Yeah. Uh, and they're tied in with the government. And now, presumably, the pressure is mounting because they're, you know, potentially struggling a bit. They think the only way that they can maintain these insane profits, and when I say struggling, I mean struggling to kind of continue increasing their profits. They think the only yeah. way that they can do that is basically by taking it out of workers' pockets. That's just absolutely the case. There's, um, 
there's another element to this. We're living with, so a lot of the modernising items or, or, or wants, if you like, from the DFT are a result of government policy. So a lot of the inefficiencies and problems that are in the railway industry are a direct result of government policy. So from privatisation, we're left with countless different contracts of employment for people in the industry doing the same job. And that is an inefficiency, it's a difficulty from a bureaucratic standpoint to manage, and it creates all kinds of difficult problems. Now, they want to standardise that, um, which is something we've called for before. So a lot of the inefficiencies in the railway are a direct result of privatisation, which fragmented the industry into lots of different smaller parts, uh, and that created a lot of differences, a lot of duplication that is unnecessary and expensive. And we've always argued to try to bring that back together uh, in the trade union. And one of the major features of that is the, the privatisation of our infrastructure. So when they, when they sold British Rail, they separated the operational side of the railway, so people who drive trains, operate trains, operate stations, from the infrastructure side, people that maintain uh, the tracks and signal trains and all the rest of it. We call it the separation of the wheel from the steel. Uh, and they privatised both parts of it. They broke up the operational side into loads of different entities and sold them off. Uh, but the infrastructure company, they sold to uh, set up a company called Railtrack, which was a private company. Now, what this company did was took extremely huge amounts of public money and loads of it basically got stolen. It went through the industry and left. There was all kinds of corrupt deals going on. They spent an awful lot of time putting up pretty signs, uh, but siphoned away a lot of the money that was aimed at delivering the really important upkeep and maintenance of the infrastructure. And it was a complete disaster. And it led to, sadly, some very serious catastrophes in which people lost their lives because the infrastructure was so poorly maintained. Uh, so the government recognised this has been a complete disaster and they had to create what we now live with, Network Rail, sort of a hybrid form of public ownership. But rather than admit that privatisation had been a catastrophe and fund the capital expenditure needed to fix our railways, they got this new entity at the time, Network Rail, through a scheme called the Debt Insurance Scheme to issue bonds on the market. Um, You'll be well familiar with bonds, but how this works now is Network Rail is sitting on a debt burden uh, north of 25 billion, and the cost of them servicing the interest on those bonds is 2 billion a year. And that's exactly the same figure that the government is stripping out of the National Railway. 2 billion a year they service the debts to these bondholders, 2 billion is what the government is stripping out. And it's, it's so plain, it's frightening. So in Network Rail, the bonds that mature next year that we're required to pay the coupon price for, the value of that is just shy of £400 million. Uh, and lo and behold, the figure that the government is stripping out of the operational expenditure of Network Rail is £400 million. And when we first uh, began to meet with these companies on the fact that this money was being stripped out and they required wholesale change, job cuts, and all the rest of it. We said, well, look, um, you're telling us that you, you haven't had an industry because people have not been using the railway. Uh, the operational expenditure isn't there, and so that you need to make savings. 
what you first need to do is go to your creditors. Just like if me or you, if we found ourselves in hard times and lost our job and we couldn't pay uh, the people that we owe money to, you'd phone them up and say, look, I'm out of work. I haven't got the same amount of money in. I can't afford to pay you what I owe. But what I can do is pay you what I can afford. And when the work comes back or when the money's better, I'll start paying you the top whack. And we think that's true for these employers. We said, well, you need to go to your creditors and you need to tell them, in case you haven't noticed, we haven't had a railway. Therefore, we can't afford to pay you what we owe. We're going to pay you what we can afford. And when the industry recovers, we'll start paying you back at the top rate. And they told us, well, our creditors can't afford that. And when you dig into <laughs> who these bondholders are, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. same people. It's, 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 it's the big financial institutions. And my argument has always been, well, if you're telling me your bondholders, some of whom have got turnovers bigger than small countries, can't afford to take a haircut when we haven't had a railway industry. I don't know what you makes you think my members who've got to get out of bed at five o'clock in the morning and go shoveling ballast for low wages. I don't know what makes you think they can afford it. And this is what we've done in other industries, by the way. So I'm also the officer responsible for dealing with Eurostar. They had no business. That was shut down. And they had no government support because they're not uh, one of the companies in control by the DFT. They had to do exactly what I've described, and we negotiated that with them. They went and got their creditors to take a haircut. Um, they got an emergency funding. It was backed by their shareholders. And when the business started to recover, you know, they started to, they've just started to pay back that debt burden. But our people were protected in there. Uh, they're doing the opposite in the railway. They're trying to make our members carry the can so that bondholders can continue to get their interest payments and continue to have their coupon uh, prices paid when they mature each year. So when people respond to you um, by saying things like, oh, you know, you can't get the government to meet all of your needs, it's up to you to kind of go out and win the kinds of pay increases that you would expect to see in the rest of the private sector. Actually, your argument is the the reason that you're in the situation that you're in is because of government policy and not just because of your, the fact that you're negotiating with the DFT, but because it set up the entire system basically to extract wealth out of the pockets of workers and suck it up into basically the pockets of big banks. That's exactly correct. So the entire infrastructure of the railway and government policy towards it is to create basically a laundering service to take public money through the industry and recycle it out the other side into private profits, into tax havens. And how they want to make sure that that profit, that level of profit making in the industry doesn't fall in order to keep that level of profit making at the same level whilst reducing public subsidy to the railway. They want to make that cut in workers' wages and in workers' jobs. And it's really short-sighted. So we're in a country that the only type of public transport that really makes sense for us in this country is rail. If we're going to have a greener economy and if we want more people to get out of cars and use public transport, then the railway must expand. It cannot be reduced. And if you listen to what government ministers and whoever uh, the government is putting up in interviews on the TV when we're doing media, they're talking about a managed decline of the railway industry. They say we've got to have a smaller railway, we've got to have a cheaper railway with fewer people on it, and they're even talking about potentially having less services and cutting projects. But what the country needs is an expanded railway, and that's where the demand is going to come eventually. There are some changes in use on transport, 
but we're never going to see the situation where the railway is relegated to second place behind private cars. It's also madness when the government is allegedly trying to tackle climate breakdown. You can't do that without a you know big, expansive system of public transport. No, and what they've allowed private companies to do is cut non-profitable um, suburban services, particularly coming out of London into the southwest. There's been a number of services cut there, and they've not been cut because the demand isn't there. They have been cut purely to assist these private companies in extracting more profit. So the whole government's policy towards it is protecting profits. And the reason we're in this dispute is because they've created this infrastructure that means there's a permanent downward pressure on wages and numbers of jobs. And on top of that, the industry takes this mandate from the government. And so they're unable to negotiate with us freely. They must go and get their mandate from Grand Shabs and they must refresh that mandate. And they often do it more than once a week when we're talking to them. They tell us we have to go. We've got to go and speak to the ministers to see what we're allowed to do next. And in further to that, we've got the government trying to impose on us the public sector pay cap, which we don't recognise. Mm. So that's the offers we've had have been in line with the public sector pay cap, which is geared towards... It's geared towards wage restraint in, 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 in the public sector. So we've had years now, 12 years of public sector workers having their wages uh, pushed below uh, inflation or just about inflation. And so people have lost huge amounts of spending power since the credit crunch. And they think they're going to impose that on us. Well, we've never, ever accepted that there should be a public pay set, uh, cap. Not for us, not for anyone else. I mean, we're... We're, we're still in the private sector virtually, even though they've wrapped our industry up in a concept called Great British Rail and they've wrapped the Union Jack around it. It's still a private industry. There's still profits being stripped out of it. So we don't accept that. So they've offered us 2% plus 1% effectively for selling uh, the furniture and all the jewels in the house. But you know, we're not going to wear that. We don't recognise it. Uh, so that's, that's, another, that's another direct sort of government policy interference in this dispute and a cause for why, for why we've got to take strike action at this time. There's been a lot of kind of comparisons in terms of the rates of inflation that we're seeing and levels of industrial action with the 1970s. But from what you're saying, this is actually a completely different situation because back then you had companies that weren't making very much profits, unable to grant basically workers wage increases without, you know, significantly denting their profitability. They should have done so anyway, but, you know, you can see why it led to all that conflict. Today, what you're saying is basically, and this is true from my knowledge from across lots of sectors, big businesses have more than enough profits to be able to grant workers wage increases in line with inflation, i.e. not to give them a pay cut. But A, they don't want to see profits lowered, for obvious reasons. But B, it's also the government that seems to be directly standing in the way in this sector and, you know, also in a lot of other sectors of allowing workers to have that pay increase. It's basically kind of class war from above. But yet we've also seen this massive level of solidarity from the grassroots that the government clearly didn't expect. So, you know, why do you think there has been this like really hard line taken by the government? And do you think they were surprised and were you surprised at like the level of support and solidarity that you've seen, A, from your members, obviously, in terms of the levels of support there was for strike action, but also from the general public? Yes, those are, those are really good questions. So 
first of all, we're in a completely, completely different situation to the 70s. So since the 70s, we've seen wages not keeping up with inflation for all of those years virtually. There are subtle differences, but in general, wages have not kept up with inflation for all of those years. And certainly over the last 25 years plus, corporate profits have really not exceeded inflation. In fact, they've massively exceeded it in a number of cases. So we're in a situation where we've got low unemployment relative to previous years. And we've got huge, huge profits, massively expanding profits, massively expanding pay at the very top of society in the financial sector, in the you know, heads of industry and elsewhere. Huge, huge, huge salaries. Large, large, large amounts of profits coming out of this country and going into tax havens. At the same time, the government is trying to impose wage restraint. So I think they've taken a hard line for two reasons. First of all, I think they are protecting the profits of uh, a whole class of people who sit on our economy effectively and suck money out of it. And if you look at government policy more broadly, we subsidise profits in a lot of sectors through direct subsidy, as I've explained in RAL. Uh, we subsidise uh, profits through uh, shoring up low wages in the form of benefits. So we make sure companies out there don't have to pay wages people can live on. So we subsidise those companies' profits directly by giving people in-work benefits. And we subsidise uh, a whole class of private landlords through giving people housing benefit because wages in the economy now, in a lot of cases, are not enough to pay the rent uh, for you to live in a, a home of your family. So we've got government policy that's geared towards subsidising profits in all kinds of different ways. And they're sitting on wages. And the strange thing about this is they, they talk about this mythical wage price spiral, but nobody's been getting pay rises. We know inflation has not been caused by wages. Inflation has been caused by a number of things. International conflict has been caused by supply chains uh, being squeezed uh, through uh, the health emergency. And it's been caused by massive out-of-kilter profits coming through our industries and leaving this country. So it's wages at the top, massive profits, and government policy that has driven inflation. And their answer is to keep wages down. I think they've taken such a hard line. Some people would say as usual, but it feels like we're the first out of the traps in terms of trying to challenge on protection mm. for workers' wages and, and living standards. But I think, you know, Boris has had um, scraped through on that vote. He's, uh, he's mortally wounded. If you look at Thatcher, there was a similar vote and she sort of walked, walked around stunned for a bit before she was finally toppled. He's in that situation. And so I think they ratcheted up the pressure on us because you have to appreciate, we've been speaking to industry for two years about some of the issues around pay. Uh, but this has really been sparked, this dispute, not so much by demands from pay from our members, although that was a, a part of it. It's been sparked by, and the timetable of this dispute has been set, by the government announcing these huge cuts and then taking the initiative and saying, we are going to start to implement these massive detrimental changes to your members' working lives. So I think they've instigated a fight with us in the RMT. And they've done so because they thought they could have that argument with the trade unions, paint us as the enemy within, and use that as a way of mm. 
unifying people around what's a quite divided and, and shaky looking government. But but it hasn't worked, has it? Has, it? it hasn't worked this... because it's come at the right time. Everyone's feeling yeah. a pinch and, and we know we don't just speak for railway workers. Now, I have to say, Grace, as crude as this sounds, we have never relied on public opinion to put bread on our table. If we've got it, mm. we'll have it. If we don't, frankly, we don't care. We will fight anyway, whether the country's against us or they're with us. But we think we've, we've gone at the right moment and we've, we've hit the right time with people that are feeling the pinch. And we want to make that argument for everyone. We think everyone in this country deserves a pay rise and we think profits have got to come down, wages and living standards have got to come up. There's a sense that enough's enough. Our pu- public services are being eaten alive by private companies and it's about time we had a reset in this country. What can then socialists and the rest of the left and indeed other trade unionists do to support this action and to try and kind of build momentum and build solidarity? Because I know that's something that a lot of listeners to this show are going to be wondering. Well, I think the government would be really pleased if they could isolate the RMT as the only uh, group of workers who are fighting on uh, a platform of the cost of living crisis. And we're really pleased to see other trade unions gearing up to join that fight, particularly pleased with what we see in the CWU. So socialists and activists in the trade union movement and activists more generally, we need to revitalise all of the trade union activity around a set of key demands on the cost of living crisis and, you know, just demands on improving working class lives. And we need that to happen in social movements too. And we need it to be all aimed at. Let's make sure people have got a home they can live in. Let's make sure they've got a job that they can get wages they can live on. Let's have a health service that looks after people. Let's make sure people can retire in dignity. And let's make sure all of those things are set first before people are taking profit out of this country. We can either be a country that's got a financial sector or we can be a financial sector with a country. We can't be both. So we need everybody to get geared up for that fight and focus on that and not get, not get sidelined and drift off into petty differences that we have on a whole range of different issues. Let's just focus on the key important facts for, for working class people in this country and try to amplify each other's arguments and support each other through that. What is as well the mood like among your members? And also, what makes the RMT different? What has kind of allowed you to build such significant support for this action, which, you know, could have gone either way in terms of public support? It could have led to a lot of public anger, some of which would have been directed towards your members. Yet, from what you've said today, it seems like, A, there's a lot of knowledge about the structure of the industry and how it's built to maximise profit at the expense of workers, and B, a huge amount of solidarity among your members basically behind this action. So what has allowed you to build that level of support? Well, I think we've built, um, over many years, a militant rank-and-file culture of democracy in our trade union. So the people who take the decisions in this union on what we do politically or what we do industrially, are all lay workers. They serve a fixed term and then they must return to their workplaces. And so we've got an extremely high level of direct involvement in decision-making processes and in activism. People don't realise how small we are. We've got something like 90 staff. That is it. The, you know, 99% of what we do is delivered through rank-and-file voluntary activism. And the key to that is our democracy. So there's no decision that can be made uh, in this union that's not made directly 
by a worker from the industry. Not me, not Mick, uh, no officers. It has to be made by one of the rank and file workers in the leadership. And any decision that is made can be challenged by any member. We're extremely proud of our democracy and we're extremely vigilant that there is no attempt to ever change or, or, or mess around with that. And I think that's really the heart of what we do. So everybody is involved, some to a bigger degree than others, but it's that rank and file democratic militant culture that we've built. That means when the organisation decides it's going to do something, it's not a top-down decision from somebody sitting in an office. It is mm. the union and the workers themselves deciding that's what we're doing and we're going to go at it 100 miles an hour. And that's what we do. Once the members tell us, point, point in a direction, we will charge. Uh, we'll go together and we, you know, there's not many of us who sleep many hours of a night here. We live and breathe this stuff and we just go at it 100 miles an hour until we, until we get the win. What does it feel like right now to be part of this, you know, yes, this strike action, but also what is rapidly snowballing into a kind of movement with Mick and, and others going out there into the public and just making so succinctly the case for, yes, wage increases in the rail sector, but also for the labour movement. How does that feel right now to be at the cusp of what feels like it could be a turning point in the history of the labour movement in terms of its decline since the 70s and 80s? It feels necessary and it feels that there's a huge responsibility that goes with that. But I have to tell you, Mick is an extremely modest person and he's both embarrassed and a little bit put out by the level of public <laughs> attention and profile that he's, he's had. But he's a great speaker. One of the things we're trying to do is get more people up front too so we, yeah. we have got some of the sharpest, most intelligent working class reps you will ever meet. And I'm not saying this um, just to be glib, but you could literally reach into any one of these companies and pull out a random rep and they can do it as well as me and they can do it as well as me. Mm. Um, we've got some really serious people and when Mick speaks, he speaks like a local rep. That's how our people are. So we do think there's a big responsibility here to try and get this right. Uh, but also, I have to say, our members are absolutely over the moon. It's been a carnival atmosphere last week. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's, been, it's been great for them. Uh, I've had people tell me that's been the best week of my life. That's and amazing. They love it. I mean, we do love a fight in the RMT, I have to tell you. So, <laughs> you know, it, our, our members really do like this stuff. So it's, it's been really pleasing. And, you know, they, they've got people that have been, they feel have been taking the piss out of them for years. Uh, and it's a real sense that they can give them one back in the eye. They've got all the government, they've got the media, they've got the money, but we've got each other. And when we use it right, people really enjoy that and like to give them a kickback. And on that note, I think we'll leave it. Thank you so much, Eddie. That was a really fascinating conversation. And it's really great to hear that there is all this just enthusiasm and optimism about the future. And I know that me and all my listeners are obviously going to continue to stand behind this action and support you however we can and hopefully we can build a much bigger campaign on the back of this and change the country absolutely well thanks for your support and thanks for having us on